Australia is in recession with uh, a GDP down 7% with, and with worse to come. Over a million Australians are unemployed, millions more on JobKeeper. And farmers are finding it hard to get fruit pickers and tradies are finding it hard to get apprentices. Australia's borders are closed and in coming months, tens of thousands of overseas workers will be given exemptions to work in parts of Australia with some of the highest unemployment rates. Tonight's Mundine's Truth Talking is Why Can't Australians Pick Fruit? To discuss tonight's topic is Gemma Tognini, uh, of course, uh, a writer, media commentator and businesswoman, James Williams, advisor to government on economic and business development, and, of course, Steve Baxter, the shark, of the Shark Tank and entrepreneur. Unfortunately, we uh, Julian, uh, Julian uh, Kilby, who had uh, had to pull out at the at short notice, but we'll have a great discussion anyway. So, uh, I want to raise the first thing. We've, you know, we're looking at a uh, in COVID uh, nineteen massive unemployment at the moment. Businesses going down the gurgle and. We're, and we're seeing a whole lot of uh, unemployment around the place. But at the same time, we've got people who are, you know, we're importing from overseas and at the, and, and yet in, into areas where there is large parts of uh, Australia with large parts of unemployment. So, you know, I, I just find that quite bizarre. Uh, what do you think about that, James? I think you're on mute, mate. Yeah, it was five bucks, mate. You're on mute. Uh, <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> are you, you going to drink? In, in regards to why? Yeah, we in regard to that, that what you know, why, you know, why are we importing people to to work in jobs where we've got so many people out of jobs? Well, I have a very interesting view on this. I think that. Um, I think it's it's one of those things that uh, it's a great sign of success, but it's also a great sign of failing in in, in terms of our economy. Um, you know, and I think we see that through generations as well. I mean, you look you look at migrant families, you look at indigenous families. Um, the thing that's interesting about it is that the the kind of things that our forefathers were willing to do, um, the next generation is not. And 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 the broader issue is how do we enmesh, or how do we sort of I suppose develop. Uh, within individuals, the same sort of philosophies and, and, and practices that they're willing to do things and, 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 and take up some of those really fundamental principles that I think somehow we lose along the way because we have it so well. So in the, you know, in, in, I suppose in relative terms, Australia's economy, is we, we experience a significant level of affluence that, um, that other parts of the world don't. And as a consequence, sometimes those sort of, um, uh, you know, um, those types of jobs, if you like, particularly fruit picking, um, that has sort of featured um, in, in a number of articles that I've just read, uh, you know, just just recently. Um, you just, yeah, people won't do, people won't go and pick fruit, and um, and 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 on that parallel, you think about indigenous communities where we talk about, you know, unemployment and everything else. I find it um, 
even more confusing that we're not even thinking about how we develop mobilization programs for people uh, in indigenous communities, um, uh, you know, to go and pick fruit the way that we would do with, um, you know, with, uh, you know, someone from Vanuatu or East Timor. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a very interesting question. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, Steve, look, you know, this is uh, COVID nineteen. It just didn't. This didn't just appear just because of the, you know, the the virus. It's it's been around for a while. You know, like you know, in previous years we've had about ninety thousand people. Uh, uh, we're looking forward to, to work in the uh, the agricultural industry and in horticultural industry, and we've also had you know something like ten to twenty thousand. Uh, people who are in the hospitality industry. Now this has just really uh, pushed it along. So it's not just about uh, just about COVID. It's it's it uh, seems to be a fundamental problem within uh, within Australia. Yeah. Look, um, my my last job before uh, I joined up as a soldier, fifteen years old. My last job before that was a part-time fruit picker. Well, I actually carried the boxes for the people picking the fruit. So I wasn't even qualified to pick fruit, but I still did it. Um, so uh, look, it's just hard work, right? It's been um, there's easier ways to make money, I think, uh, and basically if you can sit at home and be paid to watch Netflix all day, then who wouldn't want that as a job as a 16, 17 year old, right? Um, so it's disappointing. I don't, and I agree totally with the. Uh, um, the first chapter name, sorry. Um, he spoke before with his points about Africa. James. I think it, it's a, James, sorry, James. Yeah, it, it's, a, mm. it's an awesome facet, the fact we can actually um, do that. Our kids can do that. We can. We have a society that that's where we can do that, but at some point it gets bad as well. So we haven't had enough of the, um, I think, the people up and down that, that's actually reinforceable. I think I said last session that when I first started in business, I, I, we started in 1994. We just come through a couple of recessions that the Muppet Labor government said we should have had. And we had what I would describe as a very compliant workforce. Uh, it was a good thing. We all, you know, we could, we could swing behind the scene and get into it. Nowadays, you need slippery dips and chuffa chups and cakes and bridges full of crap, excuse me. So um, it's great we can do that, but I think we've grown softly to do it. Just before the show started, Jeremy, uh, uh, you were speaking uh, about some uh, horticultural business in Western Australia, which uh, uh, yeah went through a, a, a number of problems. Oh, just news has just come out today, Warren. Um, a very established uh, uh, fruit growing business in the foothills of Perth, probably about thirty minutes from the CBD, has announced it's going to be destroying more than a thousand of mature, healthy trees it won't have the staff or the people to pick fruit and it doesn't want to um, you know, have fruit go to waste. And, 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 I mean, the first place my mind goes to then is, well, then, the, then there's going to be less supply and costs will go up and all of that kind of thing. But, you know, thoroughly agree with what Steve and James have had to say. To, to add to that, um, to add to that, I think, you know, we are the victim definitely of our the success of our parents and our grandparents' generations, if you're talking about old people like me in my late 40s, but we, we're a victim of their success and their desire for us to have better lives. Um, but I also think there is there is a great reckoning. We're in the middle of a great reckoning um, with, with the generation that has decided that hard work was something to be ashamed of, um, that has hard work was something that we wanted to shield our children from. I mean, I grew up... Um, I came out of university in 91, 92, 93, end of 93. 
um, you know, the tail end of the recession we had to have. And I worked three jobs for cash. I cleaned other people's toilets. I was a, a tutor, a not, a, not a particularly good tutor. And um, and I, um, uh, you know, cleaned houses and I bust, I was a dish pig in a restaurant until I got a full-time job. And it was never a question. My dad came to Australia on a boat. I was never, it was never a question of, getting handouts it was like there's there's jobs to be done and they're menial jobs and, and work brings dignity so for our family narrative that was very much the thing you did and in that space where I guess my generation had children and raised those children in a place of more privilege than we had growing up something's been lost in our culture in our work ethic and that's the intangible that I believe is at the heart of this problem so it's not, I don't think it's a case of, oh, we need to perhaps have this program or that program. That might help from a um, from a structural perspective, but what is it that makes a person go, I haven't got any other work at the moment and I would rather be picking fruit than be on the dole? Uh, yeah, that's one of the things, that, you know, and it's not only just on fruit picking and that. I just, I'm just looking at a list of, uh, that the... the uh, the the you know Department of Employment put out, which is where sh the shortages are. So it's a wide range of uh, occupations, including uh, bricklayers, hairdressers, glaziers, locksmiths, panel beaters, arborists, chefs, and 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 of all things, uh, pastry makers. Uh, as and a further twelve occupations have also had re recruitment. Uh, difficulties and, and regional shortages. And, and I'll, I'll give you a good personal example. We were looking at hiring uh, about five apprentices. So you're looking at free um, uh, 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 diesel mechanics, which we were going to train into uh, e-vehicle e uh, mechanics, electric vehicle mechanics, uh, two, uh, elect two electricians. Sorry, my maths don't add up. There's six people and, and one uh uh, air conditioning and refrigeration mechanic, and it, and we only actually had one applicant. And when he, when he turned up for the interview, he said, "No, I can earn more money, uh, not not on the uh, uh, not on the dole." So um, th that raises an issue about how we structure some of these things. Now, James, I, I know that there. Um, a paper was uh, put out by Noel Pearson in regard to uh, attracting uh, apprenticeships. And that could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, um, I mentioned earlier this evening in in a, in a discussion with Warren. I said, um, I said, look, there's an interesting, you know, many years ago when when uh, you know, sort of Noel talked about the sort of you know the. Um, uh, you know the sort of welfare model. Um, one of the issues that he identified in his in, in, in his paper is the fact that, um, and I thought it was quite revolutionary because at the time this was you're talking about I don't know probably about 10 15 years ago, and suddenly there was a particular dialogue with government because government needed to understand what is it and and why is it that that you know there was there wasn't enough incentive for people to actually go to work. And one of the one of the things and it wasn't innovative. It was just a simple observation. And that is that you know if you look at the the welfare sort of trap if you like, and this is and I, like I said I won't I won't take any credit for it. You're basically the welfare keeps you on 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 this trajectory in a very simple plane that sort of you know it's just like a, you know a flat line, but it maintains you on that level. But it's just above enough that um, that that you know people can cope. They you know and and human beings being as adaptable as they are. They cope mm. with if you reduce the you know you keep the wage at twenty five thousand or twenty thousand fifteen thousand they'll find a way of coping. 
And of course, um, and 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 this was particularly applicable to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, and you know where where we see welfare as being the significant source of income in those communities. Yeah. The issue, of course, is that for you to be able to go and do a trade, for example, which is what Warren pointed out, um, you actually earn less money than if you are on welfare. And so, so the idea that he sort of championed in in, in a lot of his uh, in in this particular document. Um, uh, and the name escaped me, I do ask your forgiveness, um, is that in order to get the long-term benefit of a, you know, a qualification and then, of course, to be able to engage in a particular industry and then, you know, over time, as you improve your, your, your capability, you earn a lot more money. And so over your lifetime, you earn, you know, 10 or 100 times more than someone on the dole. But, you know, um, but the reality is, is that, that, that the initial step of stepping down before you step up into that sort of trajectory of growth is is the biggest sort of pitfall is that there's insufficient incentive for people to step off the benefit of being on maintained on welfare because behavior when individuals are, are stuck in in unemployment they're not long-term visionaries looking at trying to transform their lives and 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 and, 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 and you know and and there's probably a few. But when people are in that really that real cycle of long, you know, long term unemployment, and it could be intergenerational, intergenerational as well. The mm. issue, of course, is that people don't look at it. Well, if I'm going to step down, they see it as a disincentive rather than an incentive, because they're not looking at the the five year plan, the ten year plan. That's rather sophisticated, mature thinking. And so I think that there's a behavioural challenge for us because a lot of the stuff that we do and, and the way that we address those things, and I do love that description. I may not necessarily agree with a lot of the prescription that came out of that, that initial analysis, but as I say, the key thing is, is understanding that behavior and why there's a particular trap. And I think that issue around the disincentive um, as opposed to an incentive for people to do particular things. So in spite of the fact that we see these opportunities, we see people simply don't respond in the way they ought to. And, uh, and I think that's one of the, the big challenge for policymaker, but not just in terms of writing policy, but actually practically understanding how to actually develop real practical, you know, mechanisms that drive policy thinking in a particular way that transforms behaviour, because behaviour is the activation piece that's not there. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, uh, Steve, I, it was around about the 1980s when... Uh, uh, the, the massive push was to get people to universities, go for it a year 12, go to universities, uh, where previ and previously you could go to year 10 and then go off and do a trade and, and work from there. Has this played a, a lot into this area that, you know, everyone's looking at getting a university uh, degree or something like that, uh, rather than actually looking at some of these other areas of work, which in some cases like I look at my sons, they they earn more money than than uh, my daughters, and and they and yet they because they're tradies, and my daughters went off to university. Not my words. So like every uh, when I when I my trade was as a uh, an electronic technician in the army in 1987, we cleared 144 dollars a fortnight um, back then. So um, that being said, everyone I serve with now who's still working in their trade will probably earn 250k a year plus. Uh, they're now the maintenance supervisor. So, look, it, it's an amazing career having a trade. Once again, I, I'll come back to the point made previously about affluence. And isn't it great that we can offer all of our sons and daughters and kids the, the option for university? And so the, the opposite of that question is, is do we want to not let them have that opportunity? So uh, I think that there's there's um, uh, there's a point here about changing behaviour um, and how do, we, how do we make that more desirable? I think that to solve the, the short-term problem of injecting humour into this, hopefully, 
um, is that you offer everyone in Victoria currently like only a seven day quarantine if they go and work on a fruit farm. And we'll watch Melbourne empty into, uh, you know, into the fruit growing districts because everyone wants to get away from the <laughs> way. So um, to me, I, I come back to a market. The market can tend to, tend to solve a lot of these problems. I'm trying to understand how here, but you have a perverse incentive in here enforced in, in, in by government and almost probably politically immovable, in, in, in to be quite honest. Um, but in every crisis, there's an option. There's, you know, they, they never let a crisis go to waste. We've got a pretty big crisis <laughs> coming now. We can't sort this problem out in, in the context of COVID and the self-inflicted gunshot when we're giving us off and our, our response to it, and we never will. So this is our chance to solve it. But I don't know how because it, it's it's a biggie. But it's going kind of, yeah. to need double-digit unemployment in Western Sydney before literally anything in this country needs double-digit unemployment in Western Sydney before things actually change. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Gemma, so, uh, so what do you think we should be doing about this? question. I'm so fascinated by the conversation because I, you know, without being tried about it, it's a unity ticket. I agree with everything Steve said. I agree with everything James said. But for me, it keeps coming back to the intangible, the intangible around um, the culture that we've built as a nation. We've become an entitled nation. Uh, I mean, some of the comments in the chat that have been coming through around, you know, this um, aversion to hard work and aversion to physical hard work. When I, when I grew up, everyone had a part-time job. You, you know, you know whether it was, you know, a, a dish pig in a restaurant or checkout chick at the local supermarket or, you know, gardener, everyone had a part-time job. It was sort of like a, a rite of passage and, and that kind of thing. And, I, and again, I just come back to this, what do we, what should we be doing? Well, you know, you, you can't police parenting, you go, unless you're in Victoria, you can't police, um, <laughs> couldn't let that one get through. Um, you can't say to people, you will instill a good work ethic in your children. Does it come back to, as a community, how have we weakened the education system? How have we weakened the sense of responsibility for kids who, um, you know, go up before courts and magistrates and things like that? I'm not saying throw them in the slammer, but in terms of as a culture and as a community, how have we eroded this sense of personal responsibility and this aversion to hard work? And to the point about it not being COVID-related, I mean, again, I was you had Caroline DeRusso on your show a couple of weeks ago, Warren, and her parents are farmers. And, and as long as I've known her, she's talked about the fact that uh, so they're at Hyden, which is about four hours from Perth, sort of straight into the wheat belt. It's quite remote. It's near a little place called Wave Rock, you might have heard of. But for years and years and years, they've struggled to get Australian workers to come down and work seed time and harvest. They just, for whatever reason, they don't want to do it. Some of the reasons are that they've been given is they don't want to be so far from Perth, even if it's for six weeks. Uh, it's it's too physically hard. They can get more money on unemployment benefits, a whole a whole variety of reasons. But they've had uh, a long stream of, of very willing, very eager, um, you know, backpackers and, and foreign workers. So to me, as much as it, the structural can't be divorced from the cultural. And, and that's the tricky thing because cultural cultural matters take generations to change, don't they? They take generations to address and, and it's a fundamental bedrock issue around what do we value as a community and what are we teaching our kids and what are we instilling in them? And, and Warren, I mean, I've seen you and heard you talk about the sort of the racism of low expectations, but take take race out of it. It's the, the low expectations um, to what Steve was talking about before about welfare 
you know, regardless of what race or gender or, or community you're from, when you, you when you become you know, when you're told by a certain, you know, government or political party that, you know, welfare is okay, you're doing okay, you're just okay to be on welfare. And and I and I had written in a column once, um, you know, who in their who in their right mind aspires to living a life on welfare? Um, I, I don't I don't necessarily believe anyone aspires to that, but I reckon that there's a cohort in the community who've been conditioned to think that's all they're worth, or that's all they're capable of, or that's all they're good for. And again, that speaks to that cultural piece of the puzzle, or that that values piece of the puzzle. Yeah, well, I just like to, you know, when you look at countries like Germany, that where you know a lot of their CEOs actually did a trade. They did a trade, then they went to university. And it reminds me back in the good old days, you know, you go back to the sixties and seventies, where a lot of the uh, executives of some of these mining companies, you know, like when you went to BHP, you actually went to uh, Newcastle uh, uh, Steelworks, you you worked on a trade and you as then you went into the university and did your engineering degree. Is is there, you know, is how do, how, so what I'm trying to say is how do we sex up that sort of, uh, uh, you know, that trade area? Because we are struggling to get people into the trade. One of the jobs, you know, when I was working with AGL and that, uh, we used to import welders into the country, and this is back in the 90s, and so, and we were you know, paying them about six thousand dollars a week uh, in the nineties, and, and yet you, you'd think people would be tripping over themselves to, to to get that type of work, but no one did. And so, to, how do we make it that uh, so we get people to find it as 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 you know a job, a career, something to do? A good word will still cost that too, I reckon. So I can give you an example of someone who's actually done it. So why don't we hold up some role models? So there was a, a chap who was a young army apprentice carpenter. His name is Ken Gillespie. He ended up being um, chief of staff for the army, joined 15 hours a boy soldier, worked his way through to, you know, as, a, as a bricklayer. He was actually an apprentice bricklayer. I had no idea that apprentice bricklayer at the time. He ended up being head of the army, and he's still very active in business and, and, and uh, community life as well, I believe, in Sydney. He, although he's from Ridge from Queensland, so one whole, I can't hold the Sydney stuff against him. Um, so we need to find these people and sort of say, look, this is actually what's possible. I don't know what else to do. Uh, aside from each being better and each being responsible, I mean, at some point we've all got to take our minute level of responsibility. We have to own up and say, well, I, if I can change something in my purview, therefore I should do that. And, and so I'll change what's in my grasp, get out there and do it and, and lead, by, lead by example. More of us need to do that instead of pointing. And, and generally, I blame myself here as well, but more of us need to do that. Yeah. So, so this number of issues that we could talk about that was could, could you know stifle some of these things. Now, is it actually the the welfare payments that are, that are causing the problems? Because we we we've seen in the seventies when Aboriginal people accessed welfare, they they come up with the term sit down money, and which meant. That because the elders who worked on cattle stations and were hardworking, very tough people, uh, they just couldn't believe you got paid to do nothing. And so that's where they come up with the term sit-down money. <laughs> is, is that part of the problem, especially now with COVID, where they doubled, doubled the money? Uh, James? Um, my thinking around, look, I think welfare is one part of the problem. Um, it's an interesting piece because I think the bigger challenge that we have is that we probably don't do enough to understand 
the barriers on the supply side, like in terms of labor, labor supply, why people, you know, understand what, what those barriers are. Um, as, as we were speaking, one of the gentlemen sort of popped up and said, look, I'm in Perth and, you know, I'd go and pick fruit, you know, if you share numbers and, and, and whatever. But, you know, there are people out there. I, I think I think the bigger challenge is what, what, what is it that actually stops someone? And it, it, is, it, is it just the fact that welfare becomes just, a, you, know, a, you know, one of those sort of pragmatic excuses that you just, yep, this is what we do. Um, that people are not willing to, you know, sort of, you know, get up off their, you know, off their couch and go and do something. But I think that there are some practical barriers in place, whether that's the psychological one or there's physical barriers that we need to probably better understand on the supply side. Um, on the demand side, I think the bigger challenge for jobs is, and particularly those industries where they're least attractive, is that there should be industry associations that are more sort of positioned around how they understand to, I think there's an attraction piece that's really missing. In any kind of industry, in any sort of job, you know, we need to understand what what it is, what's the value proposition for, uh, you know, for, for that sort of, you know, for that job or that that opportunity, that industry and why people should join, why people should join. And we don't do enough to understand um, and then package that up so that, you know, we understand how to put the put, put the demand together, if you like. And, and, and for me, it's always been very simple, is that there's this asymmetry problem between, you know, what's available, what our supply, you know, what's available in the market in terms of our supply and what the opportunity or demand is. And we simply somehow don't do enough on both sides to understand how they marry because marriage is where you get the value, is when you've got people coming into those opportunities, accessing them and activating by doing whatever they're supposed to be doing and getting benefit or value, which is a job, and 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 the employer of the industry benefits from, from, from that resource. Um, and, of course, it- I, I just think we... We actually don't think about it like that enough, and so and then pragmatically try to solve it. Because if you think about the the fruit picking problem, that's all um, they've done. But is that they've gone okay? Well, labor's cheaper, and there's more willingness over uh, you know in terms of what labor supply is over in Vanuatu and East Timor. But yeah, Steve, you wanted to say something? Yeah. yeah is it is it is it is it a reasonable problem? Well, I mean, you, you mentioned you mentioned smash repairs before. I find it hard to believe you can't get decent panel beaters, uh, but yeah. it's obviously true. Um, is, is it mostly a regional problem? Because I mean, th- there's this link to the bigger issue we've got in Australia with respect to the dislocation between uh, cities and regions, and, and the fact that you know that because of our homogenisation of our society through the you know basically through Canberra, excuse me, Canberra collecting all the taxes and the state spending on drunken sailors, um, and they get very little opportunity to therefore bias regions. The constitution of Canberra can't do that. So, you know, that if states had more control, they could then actually more finely fine-grained dedicate policy, i.e. money and spending and taxation or lack of taxation, to drive population out there. So the fact we're concentrating in the city and we've homogenised the death out of ourselves, we're basically boring and the only choice you get where to live is what climate you want to actually put up with. Um, so if we gave more responsibility back to the states, we could then actually then bias regions where there's lack, lack of labour, for example, I think this is a symptom of a larger problem in the fact we've, we've fundamentally got a broken fiscal federation. Yeah, uh, yeah. I should say uh, you can jump in any time if you want. To, if you if you you've got a, uh, an idea or, or just want to say something in that. So yeah, Gemma and James and that, just do that. Uh, look, it's to me. Uh, it's uh, you know you talked about culture, Gemma. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and, you, and you do find in and in, uh, in a lot of regional areas, and even in Western Sydney, you go to suburbs in Western City like uh, Sydney, like Clay, Claymore, and you, and you have two, three generations of people who haven't had a job. Well, 
and 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 that's not an Aboriginal community. That this is in Sydney, yeah. Yeah. And so and you and yet when you go there, you you think you you've gone into some of these remote communities because of that. So so, so how how do you do that? Because as you know, the first teachers you have is your parents. Mm. How, how do you, how do you you, you raise the issue of culture? How do you change that? <laughs> You're hitting me with all the easy questions, Warren. <laughs> That's why I wanted you on the show, yeah. Oh, it's so funny. I'm fascinated by, I'm genuinely fascinated by that question. Obviously, because my, my on my father's side of the family at least, you know, they, they, they're like many, many hundreds of thousands of Australians, post-war economic migrants, where the narrative was, this is the golden ticket. You know, a life in Australia was a golden ticket and that was very much passed through our family narrative growing up. But I am aware that not every, not every you know, economic migrant from Italy or Europe was an upstanding citizen who worked their way to a better future. I'm, I'm aware of that. So I, I, I think there's lots of things at play um, without sort of over um, overreaching into people's, you know, lives and front doors then in the same way that we provide parenting support to new parents and parenting support programs well here in western australia anyway you know is it such a stretch to say that there should be you know identifying people at risk if there is inter intergenerational like long term i mean we have the data surely is there not a way that we can intervene and devise some way of intervening but also who has the courage to tackle welfare reform who has the courage to tackle the bit? Like it's about as exciting as or it's about as popular as, you know, having dysentery on a camping trip. Nobody wants to come up and go tax reform or welfare reform or any kind of reform because nobody likes change. Change is painful. Yeah. And whenever you say the word but, but, reform, someone is going to say you're taking away. And that may well be the case. But if you look, when I think about reform, the, first, the thing I remember most, because it was just such a formative period, I was still a journalist at this stage, a very young journalist, was the, the, the post-Port Arthur still gun young. reform. Say, <laughs> yes, still, still young. young. The <laughs> post-Port Arthur gun reforms that Prime Minister Howard brought in, and I have this vivid, vivid memory of him standing up in front of a, you know, a swathe of angry farmers, and, and I think we now know that he was wearing a bulletproof vest at one of those events. But when we talk about reform, reform is painful and nobody wants to do it, but it takes courage. And to me, that is a missing link in our, in our, um, in our governance right now, in our government. Who has courage to stand up and say, no, no, no more JobKeeper over there? Who has courage to stand up and say, no, Mr Andrews, we're taking away your COVID tra I mean, who knew they used faxes still? Who even knew faxes were around still? My God. We're coming back to this, Warren. Who has the courage to, to reform the welfare system and go, we need to start looking at tangible outcomes and stop worrying about feeling good? But I'll go one step further. We actually, given the structure of how those payments appear in Australia and the Constitution, we can't actually do that. Canberra collects it and they cannot they cannot discriminate between states. They can't say yeah. that, okay, this is there's a ghetto in Western Sydney or there's an indigenous issue up here specifically, um, mm -hmm. and use those payments meant for all Australians. There's, there's obviously Aboriginal welfare and there's there's other dedicated things, but as as a welfare issue, you can't do that. You need to devolve that back you know, more power closer to the people is, is in, in the medium term is never a bad thing. In the short term, the politicians will stuff it up, but the election will fix that. So 
um, if we can devolve that power back, you know, I'm a huge fan of having whether who spends the money should collect the money and they should make the case to people about why they're collecting it and how they're going to spend it. And that doesn't appear at the moment. That's why we're seeing 60% of job people spending in Victoria and that madman Daniel is doing what he's doing. Um, so if we can do that, then you, you could then say that this community, the state governments who constitutionally are not constrained, can say that's a problem, whether it be Western Sydney or whether it be Doomagee or wherever it might be. Let's actually work on that with, with real reform. Right now, you've got to spread the reform across all of Australia, not discriminate. So we are structurally not set up to do it. Well, gee, you chucked a, a, a wild one in there too, taxation reform. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that's another courage. I remember Malcolm Turnbull uh, talking about uh, everything's on the table and then a couple of weeks later after he Briefly. got beaten up. Briefly. <laughs> he, he, just, he said, it's all off the table now. Yeah. Uh, but... but yeah, but those things uh, can help. I'll talk about the experience that uh, one of the things that the mining industry did, and it was through uh, Andrew Forrest with the VTEC approach, which is, which has had a sort of like a marine uh, approach. We never leave anyone behind. So they take if, uh, take a person into the training centre. VTEC stands for Vocational Training and Employment Centre, and the idea this is what they set up on mining sites, and it's so, a working with the local Aboriginal communities and other groups within that area, the local area, they'd go, okay, what are the issues What that, that's stopping you from work? And that would be drug and alcohol issues or there were uh, domestic violence issues or there were housing and accommodation issues, there's literacy, numeracy, uh, education issues, uh, there were licensing issues, all, the whole wide range of things. And then they'd just package it up and said, okay, we uh, will run you through this course, uh, if this 26-week course. You go through that program, and at the end of it, we guarantee you a, a job. And that was very successfully run. You know, you you had a, a you look at the mining industry now. There's over six thousand Aboriginals working in the mining industry, nearly seven thousand, uh, and and you've got people also people who are uh, have set up businesses indigenous people who set up their own business so you not only can get a guaranteed job but if you've got a business idea uh, then you they'll also support that and and one of the things that I saw was on on um, uh, on one of the uh, cloud break it was in the mining site because of dust issues yep. and that what they did was that they set up a nursery that and and that people took, went to those nurseries, and it was a very successful program. I saw people. Uh, in fact, there was this woman I met who had, who escaped from a domestic violence situation in Perth and went up into the in cloud breaking there. Hadn't had a job for twelve years. Single mum now with a couple of kids, and they mm. put her through the program and worked with her and helped her. Four years later, she was the su supervisor of that nursery, and and they were out there doing a whole heap of work on that. So is is that? You know, is, you know, is that a way of actually sort of breaking this cycle and changing people's culture in this way? I think so. I can't, I, I can't really talk to the Aboriginal stuff, to be honest. Yeah, no, I remember, no, but this is for anyone. Very, one of the things we, one of the things we discovered on the, on the, on this, on this thing was doesn't matter what who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Aboriginal, Greek, mm. German, as long as you, you know, you, you, the same thing. It was the same thing. Oh, well, I was, I was going to reference Noel Pearson, probably my earliest. The memory of my early political awakening was listening, listening to Noel Pearson speak around the issues about Aboriginals not being own their own lands and therefore use them as risk capital in, in, in ventures and then being tied to essentially an asset they can't utilise. As a businessman, now I find it hard to understand. Well, I understand why they do it, but I find it hard to, to, to see how it's helpful. 
So, um, so I think that's on, on risk and reform and on structural issues, maybe that needs to be looked at because I, I think it's a black water brindle. You know, talent in business yeah. is so hard to find, whether it's male, female, or whatever mm. race, it doesn't matter. You're just backwards yeah. find it, right? It doesn't, mm. doesn't matter. So um, so to, to have these people who have this this prize or and, and or burden of their land and not being able to use that to advance their, 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 their future generations, I, other than just to have their look at and sit down on apparently, I, I find that to be, that's one that needs tackling because our, what we've done for uh, Indigenous Australians is nothing we should be proud of. We are working, but obviously the results aren't, aren't anything to be proud of, I should say. Yeah, well, there, there, there are major areas in that, in fact, uh, I had a, a, a Finn Review uh, article this week uh, expressing my views in regard to 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 uh, to the Indigenous uh, uh, space. Uh, to me, it doesn't matter whether you're black, white, or brindle. These programs should be working for everyone. And so, so what we're looking is what we see within the uh, in the Indigenous space about getting jobs and investment. And that it's really about looking at regional and remote Australia as well. So, how do we get jobs? And get things, investments, yeah. and businesses, and have a realistic approach. Because some of the government policies in the past were, we put the horse before the cart. Oh, well, you always put the horse before the cart. The cart before <laughs> the horse, and uh, and, uh, and you, you'd have problems, wouldn't you? They, yeah. the, and then you'd, uh, and by saying we're going to have jobs, and of course, only jobs they had was government grant type jobs and so when the government policy changed or when the grant ran out that was the end of the jobs so so we should be looking at about how do we create those environments this is what i think government's role is less government involvement the better i always say the best part is how do, how does the government create those environments but through taxation uh, through those welfare reform things, saying, okay, like you said, everyone in Melbourne, get on a train and go up to to the north northwest and northeast and start picking some fruit, or uh, uh, you know, getting uh, uh, getting those training type centres in place and getting people into those areas. I see that's uh, the the thing, and uh, for government, and also work with. The business sector, in regard to okay, what are the things? I just come back from the bush summit a week ago, and we looked at payroll tax, which is a a mm. regressive tax. It's a bizarre tax in a way that you're taxing uh, people for hiring people. That's a bit bizarre. But yeah. about about when we look at and so we're having discussions with this New South Wales government about, especially out coming out of COVID, uh, is how do we encourage businesses and, and, and to build and grow in these regional areas. And one of them was about uh, lifting the, the threshold of uh, uh, payroll tax up to $10 million or even uh, 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 suspending it. But, but a payroll tax is a percent of nothing in, in the tax structure. And it's a state tax. And, it, you know, it, it, honestly, if you're looking at tax, it, it, it's vital. It's vital. It's material, yeah. but you know, it's at the lower edge of materiality. I'm sorry, um, you have far bigger levers that you can pull, which states don't get control. Of. I, I'm going to come back to the states. I, I just think we should just evolve income tax in setting powers back to the states, but the ATO will collect it. One central post office makes sense. Um, let the states collect it because then I, I can tell you right now that if they can do that, and then Queensland can say that everyone north of the Tropic of Capricorn and the top marginal rate is 35 cents a dollar, you'd empty North, you'd empty Sydney and Melbourne in the North Queensland. I mean, so if you want real, you want, you want to give them levers they can pull. Well, they might say, you know, whether it's you know, somewhat Mount Isa, who really cares where it depends on the state, right? Um, 
they've got no levers to pull. They've got this small lever, which is an annoying thing. Uh, uh, the payroll tax is annoying, but it's yeah, yeah. the lower end of materiality. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was just I just tossing it out there to, to raise that issue again. Uh, so, do you have any thoughts about this, James? You know, if you're from the Torres Straits, you know, what, what do you what do you want to what do you think about how you encourage investment? Because in the end of the day, it is investment, and how do you how do you create businesses and jobs? Yeah, look, it, look. If you think about the Torres Strait and you think about regions like that, I mean, the the biggest challenge they have is that the sole investor is government, and um, what we're not doing is actually thinking about how we leverage existing investment to drive value in a way that well or to do things that really create value locally and so part of the problem is that we we typically use the same levers we we, we deliver services we provide goods um, and you look at those sort of regions all they are is simply a place where there's a lot of investment going in but very few of that investment is then being um, captured if you like by local businesses local uh, labor and then ultimately that money doesn't get circulated and so then it increases the cost on 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 government to then draw it from 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 the rest of the from, from through taxation from the rest of the country to then continue to invest into those regions and the smartest people are the businesses that are actually supplying into that region because they're coming from some other region they're going up there because there's there, again there's no capability or capacity underneath and so part of the bigger challenge is not just investment, it's actually the issue around capability. So, you know, and, and so there's capability, there's investment, you know, and, and the bigger piece is that those communities, you don't have a viable ecosystem where you've got individuals and businesses that actually can do the sort of things and leverage whatever investment's coming in so they can, they can capture that opportunity. Um, and so ultimately I think if we don't think in that sort of um, – strategic way about what we're supposed to do in those regions then ultimately it, it doesn't really matter because those regions will remain poor and estranged from the broader sort of you know because the economy is very fast-paced and opportunities and the way that we drive things is is very fast and and so where you've got these challenges we're not thinking tactically and strategically about how we deal with those challenges because we don't have those principles up front where we think about it and we say right those regions matter. So what is it that we want to see them transform, leveraging whatever investment or whatever available opportunity, whatever industry is in that region? Have a long-term vision about the, the transformation, if you like, that we want to see in those communities. We don't set those sort of visions anymore because we can't have that it didn't happen. I don't disagree, but, but there's a foundational issue. We can't get there. As investors, we, we can't get there. This is an annoyingly hard country to travel around. And I, I own an aircraft and I find it hard to travel around this country for God's sake. So, so um, you know, let, let's look at foundational stuff. I, I, I actually learned to fly in the US, right? And every town uh, maintained a local airport. It used to be like a 1960s V-52 base. It's quite an impressive local airport, to be honest. Um, but hmm. they've actually taken the running of it because unless they do that, they will not get factories. They will not get business owners to come and visit. And these are all the way from the major hubs in the US. So look, and, and that's an extreme example. But foundationally, I would look at setting up a business in Torres Strait if I could sanely get there. Why is it it costs me more to return fly from Brisbane to Moorumbah than it does Brisbane-Vancouver? We, we mm. have a fundamental issue with actually getting around this country. And this comes back to the regions again. It's, it's a regional problem we're talking about. And 
that, that the stranglehold that federal regulations and, and the, the organisations, CASA and Air Services, has on Australia, we, we need to be leveraging the hell out of it. We need to get around this country fast. There's no way knowing I'm going to put a large operation in Longridge or TI or someplace like that. It, it's going to take me a day and a half to get there. That is mm. just... So if you're going to do some foundational stuff, it's transportation. You, you need to get the, the shiny bum bosses to and from there back for a meeting inside a day. If you can't do that, then you're in trouble. Try flying in regional Western Australia. Like try flying from Perth to Kalgoorlie. It'll cost you... Oh, I haven't flown there for a little little while, but one of my team, uh, their family's from Kalgoorlie. They tried to fly there, I think, last year, the year before. 650 bucks return to Kalgoorlie from Perth. You know, you can get to Singapore, you can get to Bali. Say again, I, you're muted. Yeah, no, I know. How, how, how far is that? Oh, Cal is, oh, it's like an eight-hour drive, maybe a 10-hour drive. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like you're paying, you're paying 350, 400 return to Bali on, 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 um, on a on a cheapy on a cheapy flight. I've actually never. I'm probably the only woman in Western Australia who's never been to Bali. Full disclosure, but I'm I'm okay with that. But you know, like last week, I was um, I couldn't get accommodation in Broome, but my flight return flight to Broome from Perth. It's a two hour flight. Was going to be eight hundred and fifty bucks return to get to Broome and back. A two hour flight. I can get to mm -hmm. Sydney and back normal. You know, normal to to Sydney and back sort of for less than that. So you know, living in regional Western Australia. And to your point about investing. It, in a state like this, I mean, it's cost prohibitive, it's expensive, it's regulated. We are, as a nation, fundamentally unattractive as, a, as an investment proposition. If you can't get there and if you can't get there and put your hands around the throat of someone who needs to have hands around their throat to be quite blunt as a boss, yeah. um, you just, no, I, 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 will, I, I will invest where I can drive to, I can be there and back in the day. Uh, and so it's, it's foundational. It really is foundational yeah. to, to get right. an investment in these places. Yeah. So, so is that is that the 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 demand, or is is it too, uh, too much regulations yeah. in travel regulations? Oh my god! Anyway, yeah. you know, um, uh, so for a country so large and so sparsely populated and so dependent on on aviation, we are we've bugged it up totally. We truly have because we we believe that an aircraft never should crash. I hate to say that, but that—that's you know that everything has a risk involved in the world, right? No, everything has a risk involved, right? And so you know you can you can make an aircraft never crash; you'll just never be able to afford to fly on it from Perth to Kalgoorlie. Mm -hmm. So everything has a balance in life, and we have no balance in the COVID health response. We're seeing yeah. what lack of balance is doing there, and we've had no balance in that for some time. It's a hard conversation to have, sort of saying we need to associate some risk with things. We do that when we jump in a car. We we do that when we partake in other stuff. Excuse me. So um, we, we're all aware of risk and we, we, we make that decision as adults. So branded as Class B airlines, or this is a not quite certified airline, it might, you know, it might, it, it, you know, it might have twice the fatality, which means that one in every 10 million is from flailing hours there'll be an accident, if you know what I mean. Probably, probably similar to riding a motorcycle instead of a vehicle on the road. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's let people assume their own risk, but for God's sake, stop layering cost on top of cost, because in regional areas, it stuffs it, and, and yeah. foundational for regional estate. Sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was just talking to uh, to uh, the chairman of Rex, and he was saying that uh, some of these uh, uh, local government uh, airports actually put up their fees during COVID nineteen to replace the loss of money because there wasn't enough flights coming in, which is to me is an insane proposition. But anyway. <laughs> 
Well, if the, if the mayor of Gladstone's listening, wouldn't be wanted to charge me eighty five bucks a seat to land and refuel in Gladstone so I can go there for lunch. Excuse me, it was about the dumbest thing that could possibly try. Eighty five bucks at six passengers, uh, eighty five bucks each to say cost me more in fuel. Excuse me, it's going to cost me less in fuel in the landing fees at bloody Gladstone Airport. Um, they just honestly don't know how to actually help themselves. Yeah. So, so Warren, yeah, sorry, James. I was, going to say, I was just going to say on that comment, on some of the broader issues, I think one of the things that's interesting about regions and some of these industries is that there's very little study to actually understand what, it, what is actually viable or feasible and what the market could bear, if you mm -hmm. like, and where the failure rate is and what that cost is because some of these things are really marginal and it's really left to, to you know, a guessing game and really industry leveraging leveraging to maximize and to survive and then and then the consumer sometimes having to bear that um but we we actually don't understand where you know we don't have a really good narrative with industry and 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 and, and with customers to actually understand where you know for essential things that really benefits everyone where where it's really feasible and where the market failure rate is and then perhaps what government should be doing to to pay you know to, to subsidize like a you know a form of subsidy an operating subsidy in some of these industries I, I don't know because my view is is that I think that there are some things that we're trying to do in those communities that that it needs some type of support but it needs to be based on evidence it can't it can't be guesses because when we invest in welfare we throw money at things and 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 policy makers are really lazy sometimes. They just think about big, shiny stuff and they throw money at it, but they actually don't understand where the costs are. And so I, I'm, I'm really interested in those really small regions where it's marginal and it's marginal for businesses, marginal for, for people, uh, for consumers, and everybody struggles. But nobody's actually come up with some thinking around, hey, well, where's the failure? And, and if there is a failure, but, but what we really want to do is drive a certain behaviour that it needs to be maintained. We, we need to understand where government can intervene and invest or or, or pick up something, um, and and the rest the, the market can actually bear. They can bear, the, you know, like and and the thing I think about is like apprenticeships. When a child starts, you know, uh, an apprentice uh, apprenticeship, they may not be earning enough to actually maintain themselves, but with really good guidance and parents that support them. Parents may, may support them to 60% of what they actually need to maintain themselves while they're doing their trade. But all the behaviour and everything else that the child does to actually attain or, you know, uh, you know, that qualification means that the parents can actually continue to support them as they, as they work through their trade qualifications so they can get to a point where they're qualified. But that's a failure point because if we, mm -hmm. we've got a child to go and take a trade and then live, you know, and, and to support themselves, they wouldn't be able to do it. They actually need the support, and that's what. But good support, um, and the behaviour thing is different. Is that you can you can support a child and, and not ask for anything, or in some instances you can say, well, listen, while I'm supporting you getting a trade, what what you should be doing is that you should be saving the money, um, you should be you know putting some money into you know uh, you know spending uh, you know all of the sort of core things that you require to live on, um, and ultimately it's getting the right behaviours. In the meantime, we we maintain that in, that that support. Uh, so that sort of behaviour is fundamental. As that child then moves into a position where they become qualified and they earn good money, they've got the foundations. The behaviour is right, and 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 I, and I suspect that 
this is one of the big issues around welfare in, 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 in a lot of communities is that we're trying to solve big problems where we're trying to make some of these communities where they're marginal and they're not really, they, they can't operate without worrying about the fundamentals, the behaviours, that if that, if we don't solve the behaviour and, and we took them into a really great situation where there was a, you know, a, a boom, they would blow the money. And you see that in mining. People mm. that haven't worked and haven't got the foundations and behaviour, once they're earning big money driving dump trucks, spend money and they don't mm. a, 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 a acquire any kind of uh, economic foundation. Yeah. They don't own a house or do anything. Footy players do the same thing. Footy players do exactly the same. But you, you talk, you, I'm sitting here sort of high-fiving you, you know, give me a yes, Lord, in, in church. I mean, it's, it's exactly the intangibles that you're talking about. And as you're talking, I was remembering my own, like I started off as a, as a journalist, like a baby journalist on $18,500 a year full-time across ships, you know, living at home with my parents, paying board. Um, my late father had gone through a bankruptcy. We were in no position. My, I mean, I paid board and I lived at home and I didn't have an expectation. I, again, it comes to this shift, this um, cultural shift. Cultural is probably not the right word, but this expectation shift because of this period of sustained prosperity. And, you know, you've had a generation of, of parents who've gone to their kids, you know what, you don't have to do anything, darling, I'll do it all for you. And, and there's no resilience built and there's no expectations. And, you know, growing up going, I'm, my first car is going to be up. My first car was a canary yellow mini minor that I paid 500 bucks for. The doors didn't lock and it had a, a hole in the floor and I paid $12 in fuel for it, right? But I paid for it myself. And then I graduated to my mum's old Corolla and done 150,000 days. My point is my expectation as that baby journalist was not to fly around the world. I had friends in my 20s who who, who were doing that. And I, and I guess for me anyway, it comes back to, yeah, there's these two congruent, these two parallel pieces and one of them is the intangible, the cultural, the, the, the attitudinal and then the structural reform that is needed but without the courage who is going to bring that structural reform to the table and actually have the grit to push it through. Yeah. Well, I've just realised you've got no taste in colours for cars. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, but you're right, I, you know, and I did uh, my apprenticeship. I was earning $30 a week. Uh, ten, mum took $10 for rent. Yeah. Uh, mum took another ten dollars and put it in a bank account for me. Could you? She, she, I was, you know, up until I was twenty, she she had her fingernails all over that bank account, and uh, <laughs> and the other ten dollars, I uh, that's what I lived on for that week. Mm -hmm. So a third, a third, and a third. Yeah. And, oh. and that and and uh, and that taught me about okay, I've got to save money. I've got to do this. I've got to that. And that was a, a learning thing for me. Uh, and also I learned I had to crawl to my mother who wanted to get any money out of my bank account. But it's... Um, <laughs> Those, were economic <laughs> Those were economic fundamentals. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what crawling. Uh, anyway, so the... Uh, so, 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 look, the, the, the issue is about, okay, if, we, if, we, if we're really going to make a change, it sounds like it, there's a whole lot of structural stuff we have to do. Mm. Uh, uh, Steve wants to, to reconfigure the, the federation. We need to look at uh, a lot of cultural change and we need to uh, have about how we can do it. But I, I'm not one of these people who thinks it takes time. Uh, I, I look at uh, uh, places uh, 
uh, around the world, and this is what I did, rather than just looking at what Indigenous people did around the world, I looked at what other people did. So, like, for instance, I looked at South Korea and, and in 1952, up 53, after the Korean War, they were eating grass. They were starving. They were at this incredible basket case. And then by the mid-60s, there was an economic powerhouse. So I always wanted to know how people did that. And, and, and so it's about how we can get those right tools in place to let people do things yeah. uh, and let people get out there and do and do stuff. Because I'm a great believer in, in, in less government interference and, and people doing things. Warren, Warren, I, my my, my late mum, she wrote a book. She was going to write a book about her life, and she and I ended up reading it many years after she passed, unfortunately. And she talked about how her dad used to go out when she was eight, nine, or ten and shoot rabbits to eat because yes. that's all they could do. Here's a coal miner up at Ogmore in central Queensland. Um, so we we would we, we we hadn't we hadn't been bombed to death by the Chinese, and you know had the US and Chinese armies run over us three or four times up the peninsula. We were pretty close to that. I mean, so we had somewhat of that miracle too. I, I, I personally think so. I, I don't think we, we we've 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 since slipped, but I, but I do think we had that. We had a miracle almost at the same time, if not maybe decade a decade phase. Yeah, well, look, I, I, and it made me think about it over the weekend because it was Father's Day, and and so I went to my old scrapbook and I found some old photos of my parents, and I can't believe I'm looking at my grandfather. They were living in humpies. <laughs> they were living in And then here we are two generations later, uh, the, the, the people are, have been to university, they've got degrees, they, they're, they're doing a, a whole lot of different professions and trades. Uh, uh, I, you know, I'm running a business. Uh, my sons are running businesses. So within that short period of time, so things can be changed. The thing is that we've got to have uh, we've got to put in place the right structures, the right mechanisms for doing that. Education is a massive key in this area, of course, and and, uh, and also uh, you, you need to look about how do we get investment because Australia, as a country, uh, depend on, on investments, foreign investments, and other investments. And that. How can we encourage people to invest in businesses in regional areas uh, and and get and get things moving? Can I, can I sort of say that um, I, I was confronted by a chap when I was in a trade mission, the Australia Week in China, when Milky Firm was both in Beijing, I was, I was there that day. And uh, I was confronted by this chap who was talking about the similar subject now about how we, what we do for our kids. And he said, well, it's simple. We've just got to tell them it's okay not to get a higher education and for them to do what they want. Yeah, that's and right. It was quite, it was, but it's, I was like, I had like a one-and-a-half-year-old, so it was a bit, bit of a confronting message. So, um, but we have to, as parents, we've got to let our kids be brave and we've got to, and we're really lucky that they can have a couple of cracks at a career and, and eventually get it right and let them find their feet rather than saying, go and do this, you will be yep. a doctor or a lawyer or an art yep. student or something. Yeah. Do you know that yeah. my, 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 late, my late dad's career advice to me was, Jemmy, I don't give a expletive what you do with your life. Just don't be half-assed about it. Whatever it is, do not be half-assed about it. There was never any you must go. And my dad didn't go to university. He was a migrant. He, he finished high school. But, you know, there was never any expectation. Uh, now it's a given. And we talk about this, I'm just conscious of the time, but I did a journalism degree. If I had my time again, I probably wouldn't have. But the degree that I did, you know, they, they dropped the entry level and they're pumping 200 kids a year to a journalism degree. In what planet is there 200 journalism jobs? I mean, it's, it's actually criminal. 
Yeah, and that, that, that's uh, and you and you're right. It, it, it's about uh, you know fu- you know look. The worst thing you could do is have governments pick winners and losers. That that's the worst mm. thing you do. But but at the same time, you, you, you know we've got to really address this uh, this university thing. And you're right, Steve. You don't have to go to university. You can do other things. And and even if you do go to university, which I did later. Uh, you know, I did it as as a mature age student. Uh, it was uh, 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 it it was more about a knowledge factor than rather than looking at a career thing because I, I already knew what I was going to do and I was and I was doing it. It's about okay, what am I pick up some knowledge about certain things? So I went off to the Elton Mayo School of Management at South Australian Institute of Technology. Now. Do we do? Do we need to be working with kids and see and, and and just saying that? Just relax, you know. Don't you know? It's, I noticed there was a message there that uh, you know some kids, uh, you know, that uh, one kid uh, wanted uh, to be a baker and his parents told him that he'd be a failure. Well, there's no such thing as a failure. I like my parents' attitude, which was. You work. You're feeding your family. It doesn't matter if you're if you're the midnight man going out and collecting mm. the, the dunnies, or or you're, a, I don't know if a lawyer is a good example, but if maybe <laughs> yeah, you're a doctor or someone else. It, they saw that as all equal. They saw that you're out there doing things and and you're feeding your family, and that was the most in, important thing. Uh, look, I've just been given the, the heads up that we have to uh, uh, close up now. Look, I'd like to thank you. For your input th- today uh and also uh, we've got a lot of comments we might send on to you later on uh, uh questions and that and but in the next two weeks we're going to have a uh, we're going to have a show and I've, i'm toying with the idea uh, of looking about this about structural stuff and things that we need to look about which and a lot of these issues were raised tonight in regard to taxation in regard to the federation structure uh, and about how we can do things uh, to make a big difference. Anyway, thank you, James. Thank you, Gemma. And thank you, Steve. And thanks for the people out there listening. Thanks, thanks Warren. Great.